Davos elites explain what they believe must be done to stop not only the external threats, but also the internal threats that they say democracies around the world are currently facing. Who are these internal threats they speak of, and what exactly are they proposing to do about them? This is the Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. So last week, I watched all of these Davos sessions. I took a whole bunch of notes, and I jotted down timestamps to pull clips from, and I was going to do all these shows covering what was going on in those Davos panel discussions. And then I made the mistake of upgrading my internet, which, long story short, ended up with me not having internet for a week. It was a little bit frustrating I do have to say this, though. The internet company displayed quite, I mean, an impressive ability to not be able to solve the problem. World class. At one point, you know, after a technician had installed the device, there was supposed to be another one come here to try and fix the problem who somehow ended up at a house 45 miles away from here. I, I, I don't know, but that actually happened. And I did record myself ranting about this last week in the midst of it that I'm going to include in the DMBXR. If you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report. That's a subscriber only portion of the show. But while the lack of internet did screw up my plans for last week, I did get one plus out of it. I think I learned how to use OBS a little bit and those watching will be able to see that Looks a little bit different, experimenting with a few things. Hopefully it works out. <laughs> we'll find out anyway. Because I usually do this in StreamYard, and I had no internet. And I didn't have a... A lot of computers have an easy way to record. I, I don't have an easy way on mine. And I mean, so I started playing with OBS. And you'll notice my background is Stella's wonderful World Economic Forum Klaus Schwab artwork. It is, once again, perfect for the day's subject. Okay. I'm going to go through some of the stuff that I did all the prep work for last week. Not going to go through all of it. I'm going to try and stick to the stuff that I think hasn't gotten you know, a whole lot of play yet that I also found to be interesting. One of which is a session titled Democracy, The Way Forward. And the description for that Davos session is, as democracy comes under increasing pressure, what can leaders today do to strengthen democratic systems? Having watched this one a couple of times, I think a better title would be The International Order, The Way Forward, because that's clearly what they mean when they say democracy. And this discussion, for me, reveals their strategy for expanding their international order in the face of resistance worldwide. So, with that said, here's the Ukrainian representative on the panel to kick things off, Alexandra Matvichuk, the chair of Ukraine's Center for Civil Liberties, framing the discussion for everyone by telling us what Russia and Ukraine actually represent in this war. And they made a big deal, by the way, of letting her speak first, because, you know, obviously the most important voice in any discussion on the future of democracy is the Ukrainian one. Russia started this war because Putin is not afraid of NATO. Putin is afraid of the idea of freedom. And in this census, this is not just a war between two states. This is a war between two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. And that's why victory for Ukraine. It's not just to restore international order and push Russian troops out from the country, the occupied Crimea and other territories of Ukraine. Victory for Ukraine is succeed 
in democratic transformation and build a sustainable democratic institution. And success of Ukraine will have a huge impact to a democratic future of Russia itself and to other countries in our regions where this freedom is shrinked to the space of a prison cell. So in this regard, we as Ukrainians ask for support of international community to make Ukraine win fast. Yep, she wants uh, the support to help Ukraine win fast. H-U-W-F, put it on a hat. She's basically saying, in my opinion, that if you guys want to make the world safe for democracy, and by democracy, I mean the international order, she said it right there, victory in Ukraine is part of restoring the international order. So if you want that, just keep giving us money, keep giving us weapons, and if we win, you'll be able to spread that democracy, international order, to nearby regions, and even perhaps one day Russia as well. You can keep spreading that empire, baby. Keep writing those checks, sending those weapons. If this war, as they continue to tell us, is actually between authoritarianism and democracy and not actually Russia and Ukraine, then that would seem to indicate that Russia versus Ukraine is just one battle of a much broader war. One that doesn't end with the defeat of Russia. That only ends once quote, anti-democratic authoritarianism worldwide is defeated. And this is confirmed throughout the panel discussion. The president of Latvia confirms it here. Very briefly, he identifies that there are, in fact, two types of threat to democracy that democracy is currently facing worldwide. Democracy is challenged both from, the, from uh, internal threats and external threats. External threats... And the... U.S. agency or the administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, Samantha Power, a former Obama administrator and wife of Cass Sunstein, who famously wrote a paper, the propagandist for Obama, famously wrote a paper suggesting to demonize conspiracy theorists. She also confirms that in a statement here during the panel. Democracy is under attack. It's under attack, as Alexandra said, and as we all know from without, from authoritarians, and increasingly within even established democracies, it's under attack from, from within. Okay, I just want to play those clips to establish what the focus of their conversation was really on. They define these external threats to democracy as threats from countries that aren't part of their gang yet, you know, that, that they consider to be anti-democratic countries like Russia. The president of Latvia in that first clip I played there, he goes on there to say that those threats, those external ones, are to be taken on by the world's largest military alliance of democratic nations, which is NATO, you know, the, the muscle of the new world order. But then the conversation shifts to what I found to be the more interesting part of their little talk here. It shifted to how to take care of those internal threats to democracies, how, how to put those down, the ones coming from within the democratic nations, the domestic threats, if you will. Here he is again describing what those domestic threats look like. So internal threats, it's uh, much more complicated. Uh, internal threats are uh, in difference uh, to the internal threats uh, between uh, the two world wars uh, when there was a authoritarian uh, ideologies which certain attractivity uh, with strong leader and, and so on and so on. Uh, now I see the main uh, internal threat from populism, 
populism is uh, not advocating uh, obligatory a very strong leader uh, as authoritarian leader, but uh, is attacking uh, the representative democracy. All right. Well, that's what it looks like. The internal threat looks like a populist who attacks representative democracy, which that kind of sounds a lot like what our establishment media and politicians call an election denier. That's the complicated threat, the internal threat that they're trying to take care of within democratic nations. It's the people who just ask a few too many questions. And apparently the president of Latvia here is the perfect person to talk about this subject because according to him, his country doesn't have any, quote, anti-democratic questioners mucking things up over there, you know, like the U.S. or Brazil might have, as they would say anyway. Here he is telling us why they don't have that in their country. So in Latvia, uh, there are no uh, other uh, anti-democratic movements or organizations and so on, because we know very uh, very much uh, the value of democracy, this experience of Soviet colonialism, Soviet uh, imperialism, it, it is still there. Yes. And uh, we draw the conclusions. And therefore, Latvia is one of the sta- more stable democracies, yes. I think. It sounds to me like he's saying that his country's democracy is so strong because his people have the memory of a more repressive regime, of just a worse situation fresh in their minds, and that they do anything to avoid reverting back to that, including not questioning their government. Because, you know, once you start asking a couple of questions, bing, bang, boom, the government collapses and there's an authoritarian takeover. It's like, look, people, you have a choice here. You can start questioning us, your government, all you want if you're okay with democracy collapsing and the Nazis taking over, or if you love your freedoms that we give you and you want to protect this democracy, you can shut up and just trust your government. Now he's going to tell us how other countries can silence people and have a democracy as strong as his is. In countries where such experience, negative experience, uh, is not there, uh, then, of course, uh, we should draw the attention on populism and try to convince uh, the population to trust the representative democracy. And uh, the core issue is a trust, trust or mistrust to the uh, uh, legitimate um, uh, legitimate institutions of democracy. I think this is a core issue, and then we can ask how to build the trust, how to increase the trust. But trust is a core issue. Trust is the core issue, and it is. This was the Davos initiative, the trust-building initiative, because they know the people of the world do not trust them, and they have to get it back for their forced world policy that they want to implement on everybody to actually work. And I, I don't think it's working so well for them, but couple of things you need, seems like, according to him, to snuff out that domestic threat and protect democracy. That is, if you're not lucky enough to have the negative experience that people remember, like, like his country has, you know, the ones that justify the taking away of all of people's freedoms without them questioning it. What you need is you need to create that fear, since you don't have the real one, of an impending negative experience so that the people will just shut up and comply because they think it might happen. And the way that you do that is to draw the attention of the public to the populism and the threat that it poses to democracy and freedom. And how might you go about doing that? Well, here's what you do. You go, hey, look over there. 
that person's questioning the outcome of the 2020 election, the most secure election in the history of the world. Those questions are a threat to our democracy. Someone stop that man or woman or they. Well, obviously, it's not a they. That man or woman. Stop those domestic terrorists right now. Alert the FBI. Check that box because America's got that part of this strategy covered already. And so does Brazil, it looks like at this point. January 6th over here and the subsequent show trial was a way to call that to the public's attention, just like he's describing here, so to create that fear. It's interesting. I mean, this is like a strategy, a worldwide strategy that they're going after here. And I think in part what Biden's new strategy for countering domestic terrorism that was published and announced in June of 2021, I think part part of what that was about was the government officially announcing that certain types of behavior are now considered by them to be the behavior of domestic terrorists. So that way people not only knew what to look out for, so they could help the FBI by alerting them to these people. But they also knew what not to do themselves to get on a list. And I think that was kind of making it official there. And we got an idea of what those types of people and behaviors were in that document itself. But we also learned more of them as we went on the way that the FBI and the government talked about it. And some of those behaviors that will get you classified that way uh, include but are not limited to, obviously, questioning the 2020 election, protesting the mask or vaccine mandates at like a school town hall, opposing the Ukraine weapon pack, weapons packages publicly anyway, R- really just any questioning of the establishment narrative about things that it is not yet okay to question or questioning those public officials like Fauci or, or canning corn, which there was a Council on Foreign Relations panel discussion where they actually said people who can their own food, are just a couple of steps away from white nationalism and are a domestic terror threat. So stuff like that can get you seen as an anti-democratic threat to democracy. And also with that established, the media can then highlight stories that make it appear like these so-called domestic terror threats are spreading and becoming international terror threats to democratic nations around the world as well. So January 6th, as I said, highlighted that fear over here, and January 8th highlighted it in Brazil. For, from our perspective, from their perspective, from others, oh my gosh, America is exporting election denialism. Ah! That's why we see stories every now and then, like QAnon-inspired plot foiled in Germany, or mask mandate protests in France become violent, 12 injured, because they want this idea of right-wing extremism, not that that is right-wing extremism, they just call it that, is spreading. Authoritarian embracing people who hate democracy are, are, are spreading around the globe. So they've already attempted to, to do this, to create this MAGA-Trumper, QAnon-like threat at the international level, to create that fear he's talking about. And now they're attempting to just get the public to trust them, as he suggested as well, with that trust-building effort handed down by Davos. We see it with CNN's attempt to revamp their image over there, maybe even with Twitter's attempt to revamp their image to become more trustworthy to certain groups of people. This is their strategy, and it's a worldwide strategy. So the domestic terrorist here is the international terrorist. That's the idea right there. It's almost like tying it to one and the same as Putin, is making that threat, making it rise to the level of perhaps 
you know, maybe NATO has to do something in the democratic nations as well. I don't know if it'll ever get that far. I know that it's failing badly because they're not getting anybody to trust them more. The more they do stuff like this, the less the world trusts them and the more of a joke they become, which is which is kind of great. OK, I have one more person on this panel who I want you to hear from. Her name is Samantha Power. I mentioned her earlier. I played that short clip of her talking about the internal and external threats to democracy. The former Obama staffer, Cass Sunstein's wife, the one who was involved in that unmasking controversy in 2016-2017 with Susan Rice, when in the final days of the Obama administration, shortly before Trump's inauguration, she tried to unmask like 260 private citizens associated with Trump. She seems to have no problem using the power of her position to push the agenda of the international order. That's clear to me anyway, if you watch what she says throughout this conversation that they're having. And I'm going to play you some tech stuff she's talking about here, because during the discussion, she talks about how putting together the best toolkit to defeat these anti-democratic forces worldwide. That, that that's what she's working on and, and how investing in projects around the world that are fighting against these same anti-democratic forces, investing in them is one of those tools in this fight. And, and here she's talking about how Ukraine has turned something that the USAID that she's the head of invested in, an app, how they've weaponized it, turned it into an app of war as the Washington Post called it, in this fight against Russia. They repurposed it. And she's talking about that right now. And this stuff is kind of crazy. When we think about Ukraine, of course, we think first of the incredible courage of the people and everything that they are going through right now. Um, We think of the volunteers and the grassroots mobilization. We think of the grotesqueness and the brutality of Putin and his forces. We don't really think about tech. It, it, it's like they have a contract where they all have to say the same thing when they start their sentences. No matter the question or, or what you're talking about, you always have to just make sure to, to address the brutality of Russia and uh, the bravery of, of Ukraine it, every single time. It's either just programmed into them unconsciously or, or they've agreed on some contractual level to do that. It's just it's crazy. They all say the same thing. Mobilization. We think of the grotesqueness and the brutality of Putin and his forces. We don't really think about technology. But Ukraine is one of the globe's great trailblazers right now in terms of technology. And President Zelensky came along uh, in around 2019 and he said he wanted to put the state in a smartphone. And, and as Alexandra can attest, and she could even show us on her, on her smartphone, uh, USA part. Isn't that weird that a smartphone went off right as she said that? That's on the video. That's not here. It's a little weird. With the Ukrainian government in 2019 and helped them build something called DIA, which is an app that now has 120 services for citizens on it. Mm-hmm. It includes everything from get your birth certificate, your death certificate. You can get your own death certificate on your phone. You don't even have to go to the funeral home or to the government. It'll come right to your phone after you die. Pay your taxes. Uh, It has been pivoted uh, in the conflict uh, to be able to get benefits to displaced persons. It's all, you know, from the beginning was was tending to to pensioners and start a business uh, through DIA. And, you know, it does two things. It 
delivers, it helps citizens feel connected. 18 million of the 30 million adults in Ukraine have this Aptia and use it. Uh, it, it actually, because of geospatial uh, uh, recognition, it can tell you where a displaced person has moved to. Mm-hmm. It can- wow. It can track people into another country. And report to a family property damage, even if they're living in Germany, about what has happened. But the second thing it does is it allows citizens to hold their government accountable mm-hmm. because it renders much more transparent processes that for too long were susceptible uh, to corruption. And, you know, to see now... And this isn't susceptible to corruption. This is being used for corruption. There's going to be a lot of reconstruction in Ukraine. Many of the people who are gathered here in Davos, I hope, are going to be part of that. The reconstruction needs to happen now and not await the ultimate disposition now. Every repair matters now. Well, with DIA, you can actually, at every construction site in Ukraine, there's a, a... permitting process, you know, somebody has to figure out who's, who's actually doing the, the, the rebuilding, and there's a QR code at the construction site, you hold your phone up, you get the QR code, it tells you who has the permit. You can actually access the contracts that went into to the rebuilding. So we have to remember in Ukraine there are two wars. There's the war that is on the front page of every newspaper, and there's this war. The war that Alexandra and her, her peers are a part of, which is strengthening democracy, fighting corruption, and making this an exemplar for how we harness technology for good, again, not and, and withstand the, the worst misappropriation of it, but recognize how connected it can be to delivering for citizens. Yeah, I don't think they're going to withstand the worst misappropriation of it. They're using the worst misappropriation of it right now. Uh, they're using the war to expedite the implementation of the digital ID and the digitation of society. And why are the people at Davos, as she said in the clip there, going to be part of the reconstruction of Ukraine along with uh, apparently our government as well? Well, because they're going to build it back better with a smart grid. Listen to this. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the DIA app, and she didn't really do a full disclosure on the way or the ways the app is being used in the war, because it's crazy. The DIA app allows Ukrainian citizens to use digital documents in their smartphones instead of physical ones for identification and sharing purposes. The DIA portal allows access to over 50 government services. Eventually, the government plans to make all kinds of state-person interactions available through DIA. DIA was first presented in 2019, as she said in the video, by the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Well, that's quite a name for uh, uh, an organization. The State in a Smartphone Project was aiming that by 2024 to have 100% of all government services online with 20% of the services provided automatically without the intervention of an official and one and only one online fill-in form to receive a package of services in any life situation. Just one form. That's not hackable. And seriously, that'd be very convenient, obviously, but I, 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 I've been on the phone for like, 60 hours the past week trying to get my internet back up. Half that time was me trying to get around a a, a virtual person I was talking to to talk to a real person because a virtual person couldn't do anything. 
President Volodymyr Zelensky created the Ministry of Digital Transformation in 2019 to develop Ukraine into a digital state. The app is the main form of identification for millions of citizens in Ukraine and can house important documents. For example, what important document do you think they're going to bring up? The European Union has officially recognized electronic COVID-19 certificates in DIA. And then there's this, which she was speaking to in the clip here. This is from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the think tank. Digitation will also be an integral component of the reconstruction process and modernization of the economy. Just as greening, transparency, and gender and inclusion are cross-cutting principles of the entire post-war reconstruction process, digitization should be viewed in the same vein. Ukraine should follow a digital first approach reconstruction. And we're investing in this, and these other com- companies are investing in this. this they're experimenting this, with this stuff on Ukraine. At the 2020 DIA summit, President Zelensky opened the summit by announcing that in 2021, Ukraine will enter paperless mode by prohibiting the civil servants from requiring paper documents. I wonder how long until he prohibits them from accepting them. The total digitation of Ukraine expedited because of the war. Well, I guess chalk that up as another crisis taken advantage of. I mean, what could go wrong here? Oh, wait, perhaps this could go wrong. Data leakage. Any storage or official documents in electronic format is associated with a risk of their leakage. And this is in the same article, the Washington Post, I think. In May 2020, the data of 26 million driver's licenses appeared in the public domain on the internet. It's just not a big deal, you know. It's also worth noting that rolling out the digital ID worldwide is part of the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. The success of the digital sector before the war and the resilience it has shown during the war signal its potential for modernizing all of the country's sectors. Ukraine is encouraging collaboration in digital transformation and is ready to share its experience and solutions with the world. An example of that strength, Estonia plans to pilot a national mobile app based on the DIA app for interaction with state digital services over there. They're trying to export the digitation of society already. Because of the success they're enjoying in, in Ukraine during the war. This, this was a test of how a digital society can operate during a war. Uh, that's something to think about. Oh, and she didn't exactly go on to talk about what the app is really being used for. Here's what that lady Powers said in a speech earlier this year at, I can't remember which think tank it was, but it was another one of these type of conferences. She said... Technology can indeed be weaponized, this technology. The truth is that digitation isn't going anywhere. Connectivity in 2022 is no longer a luxury of any kind, but a necessity. And if we are to shape our planet for the better, we must make digitation a center tenet of our work. Since the very beginning, USAID has embraced digitation. And here are the war applications. As millions of Ukrainians have fled the country and more are internally displaced, the government has adopted its digital services to help refugees. The DIA app is now, it now makes it possible for internally di- displaced persons, IDPs, 
to register in new communities in Ukraine. Developers also added a feature where users can change their state registered address. The DIA app also enables refugees to register its locations across country borders. Ukrainians in Poland can also use the app for a PEZEL, P-E-Z-E-L, a Polish identification number similar to a social security number. It tracks them everywhere. That's it. it tracks them everywhere across borders using that type of weird data she's talking about earlier. Ukrainian citizens have also been able to support the war effort through various digitation applications. They can use the DIA app to upload location-tagged photos and videos of Russian military activity to a map that Ukrainian intelligence services use to inform counterstrikes and defense maneuvers. That's crazy. Regular citizens, hey, look at this, and then the military targeting it and blowing it up. The country's Minister of Digital Transformation, his name is Ferdoff, told the Washington Post they're getting thousands of reports a day. This is like alerting the January 6th committee or the FBI about somebody you know who was at the Capitol on January 6th on super steroids. Most prominent features are unmistakably militaristic. The app's developers have started allowing ordinary Ukrainians to submit that location tagged photo and data of Russian military sites, as well as tips on suspicious people who might be invaders or saboteurs. Just report somebody who's suspicious. Ministry officials have also begun pushing the app's capabilities into controversial frontiers, as if that wasn't already. On social media this weekend, his team, which once used facial recognition scans to verify Ukrainians' identities for government services, has started adopting the face-scanning tech to identify the faces of dead Russian soldiers. A ministry official told The Post last week that the project is in the very early development, it's only in the early development, and will likely rely on software offered by the facial recognition firm Clearview AI, which has been criticized by international governments for filling its database with billions of people's face photos taken from social media and other websites. Here's the donation the USAID made that I was talking about earlier. Samantha Power announced that USAID plans to allocate about 650000 to form an approach to disseminating the digital experience of Ukraine and the DIA mobile application to other countries. In addition, USAID is actively developing a new project to support the digitization of Ukraine. That's what I said. That's what this is. USAID has been supporting our team. This is the Ministry of the Digital uh, of Digital Transformation in Ukraine speaking. USAID has been supporting our team since the beginning of the ministry's work. This year, we are moving to a new stage of cooperation. The Ministry of Digital Transformation will share the best Ukrainian digital practices with the world. Thank goodness. Finally, thank you. We've all been waiting for you. Thank goodness this war was able to to speed up that process. All right, so along with protecting democracy for the entire planet, Ukraine is also pioneering the total digitization of society and and seeing how it holds up in wartime at that. I mean, what a grand test that we can all learn from. Uh, Oh, and they're asking regular citizens to 
point out where the enemy is, you know, kind of like the FBI did on January 6th, except the Ukraine military is then blowing up the areas that they're pointing out. The crowdsourcing of, of killing in war. I mean, it's crazy. I don't want to end on that. That's kind of a bummer. It's crazy, though. But t- tomorrow's show, I- I'm going to be going exclusively through clips of a guy who's George Soros's best friend and long ta- long-term partner that I-, I was not even familiar with until just the other day. He's part of like every lawsuit in regards to like the election machines in the 2020 election. And he's the most global, deep statey person I've ever encountered in all my years of research. He's a British guy. Like I said, George Soros is bestie. I'm going to be going through like seven minutes of clips of him talking about some of this similar stuff here. So look out for that. And in the DMBXR here, going to be ranting about my internet service debacle that left me with no net for a week. And if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report. Might be talking about some other stuff as well. Depends on how much time there is. Before we get out of here, one more thing from the Davos discussion. How about a clip out of context? Having registered close to 1.4 million individuals and touching roughly 11 million people a month. Somewhere Joe Biden is saying 11 million people a month? Amateur. I'm Brad Binkley, patreon.com slash propaganda report for the subscriber only content. Thank you for listening and we'll Talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.